about Alzheimer's and dementia. So I'm going to start by talking about my own experience with these diseases. And they're, they're unfortunate, they're ugly, but they're a part of life. So my grandma on my mom's side was diagnosed with early onset, it was either dementia or Alzheimer's, but she was diagnosed early onset. And I believe it was by the time she was in her 60s. So she had it in her 60s, which is pretty early. That's pretty early. Yeah. 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 That's early. It was and probably the early onset Alzheimer's. I mean, that yeah. is clear. That is clearly a diagnosis. Okay. Right. So it was hell for my whole family. I was 13 at the time. And so. So hell was, when she, hell when she got the diagnosis or after? Around that time. I, I was 13. I just remember being 13 years old and she had come to stay with us and she called me the B word and accused me of stealing her teddy bear. Okay. That, I mean, that, that feels more like Alzheimer's. Okay. Right. And this was devastating to me as a 13 year old, because I couldn't understand why my grandma who loves me would say such things. And my mom had to explain to me that it's not her talking. She is sick. She's ill. And in her mind, she was connecting random things. And so it got to a point where she had to be put in a home because she was overdosing on her medication because she would forget she took it and take it again. And there's no cure for it. And so it ultimately ended the way all life does. But it can be a very, very difficult situation to deal with. So we're going to talk about the differences between Alzheimer's and dementia. We're going to talk about early symptoms and self-care and how to handle it when you're dealing with it. Right. And so the first thing I want to say is that I'm not a medical doctor and this is really right. much more of a, a medical topic. And yes. But although there are certainly psychologists who are involved in the treatment of people with dementia and Alzheimer's, but it's a real specialty and mm -hmm. it's probably a neuropsychologist. I was just thinking there's a at least in Salt Lake City, uh, Bob Hill, who was, uh, he's in independent practice now, but he was one of my instructors when I was going through the graduate program. And he made a specialty, I mean, his, his specialty in research was Alzheimer's. And I'll talk about some of the things that he came up with. It was more in the treatment of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So there certainly are psychologists who will focus on that. But, right. you know, for, for someone like me who has a practice who's dealing mostly with relationships, anxiety, depression, I would never treat someone uh, right. For that, I would always refer them to someone else. You know, you talked about how devastating it is. I don't know if you've heard this term. Some people call it the long goodbye, because yeah. if you think about what makes you, you, mm -hmm. and one of the things that really makes you, you, it's fundamental is our memory and our experience, you know, there are many times in these podcasts, and even when you and I are talking, you know, before the podcast, where we're talking about childhood stuff, memories mm -hmm. from, you know, and, and that's all memory. So what would it be like? Can you try and imagine if that slowly went away? And it yeah. just, I mean, it's almost like the, this dark cloud comes over your memory and starts mm -hmm. to obscure it. I mean, it's hard for it's hard for everyone. It's certainly hard for the person who has Alzheimer's and it's very, very tough. Like you gave the example 
of your grandmother because their personality changes with Alzheimer's and that's what's going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. And, and often there's inappropriate things that they say or inappropriate behaviors. But, you know, as a 13, 14 year old, that's still hard to, to understand. It was mm-hmm. very, very hard. And, and I remember as it had progressed and she was in basically a hospice situation, mm-hmm. you know, cause my mom would call her as much as she could and she had me, she put me on the phone one time and, and the nurse says, say hi to your daughter, Sylvia. And she goes, hi, Sylvia. And I'm like, yeah. okay. So I, I, I mean, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to handle this. You yeah. Know? And it's, so very, it's very hard. It's hard for adults to know how to handle, let alone an adolescent like you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and not that my mom was trying to put me in a difficult situation. She oh, just, no, I I don't think so. You know. She was probably just trying to give some sort of connection. But she, yeah, she absolutely was. And I had really fond memories of my grandma. In fact, my grandma is the reason why for a long time, I liked the smell of cigarette smoke. Oh, you associated because- that with her. I did because she smoked and as as a very young kid, I would be around her and I had happy memories and it was an association thing, mm-hmm. you know? And so for a long, long time, I, I liked this, not that I wanted to, I would actively go seek it out to inhale it because it's secondhand smoke isn't good for you, but I liked the smell when I did catch a whiff, I liked it. Yeah. Isn't that interesting how smells do that? For me, it's lilacs. Yeah. When I walked to school in elementary school, school it was always lilacs, and so mm-hmm. in the spring, I think I associated it with the end of school because it uh, always happened yeah. right before yeah, the end of school. And, and again, it's what makes us who we are: yeah. our memories. So if you lost that, and for yourself and the people around you, that's really devastating because it really you is. essentially become a living ghost. I think mm-hmm. is that you know there's nothing there. Anyway, so let's talk about the difference. What are the differences between dementia and Alzheimer's? And so dementia is more of a category, or a lot of people call it a syndrome. And all a syndrome is, is a collection of symptoms that occur together often. So if you think of dementia as there are issues with memory, with cognitive processing, social abilities, and they're severe enough, though, that they affect your daily life. And so underneath that, would be Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's is considered a dementia, but whereas dementia would not be considered a disease. Okay. Alzheimer's is definitely considered a disease. And I think the big difference is that, so if you think of dementia, there are, there are certainly other diseases that cause someone to have dementia or those memory problems, but Alzheimer's is a disease in and of itself. And just briefly talking about what is it that goes on in the brain of someone who's got Alzheimer's. And so there are proteins in the brain I'll try and make this really simple. There are proteins in the brain. Yes. There are two. Uh, one's called amyloid beta and the other one is tau. And often when they accumulate in your brain, your brain has a really good way of getting rid of them or you know, getting them out of the brain. And what happens in Alzheimer's is that whatever makes that process work mm-hmm. breaks down and you start to accumulate, especially that amyloid beta. And so you may have heard the term, people listening may have heard the term plaques and tangles, which is kind of the way they describe what happens when there's the accumulation of these proteins. Mm-hmm. And so what happens in the brain is that 
I'm sure a physician would not describe it this way. I like to think of it as it gums everything up and it makes yeah. it really hard. And, and I think in, in a real way, it destroys the neurons. And so that's how, you know, it slowly disappears. The other thing, dementia in and of itself is not fatal. Okay. Uh, Alzheimer's certainly is. You know, I don't think there's, you would say there's any cure for dementia. There certainly right now is not a cure for Alzheimer's mm -hmm. and it, it progresses. I think statistically, the average time after diagnosis is about eight to 10 years. How long did your grandmother live with this? I don't remember, but it wasn't long. It progressed pretty, pretty rapidly. Yeah. yeah, I think it was within five years, five okay. to eight years. It was pretty quick. Part of it too could be her lifestyle. And we're going to get into that later, but she lived a very, yeah. very unhealthy Smoking. lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yep. And she smoked. Yeah. It's not good for that. So let's talk about the difference in symptoms because Alzheimer's and dementia look very, very similar and well, they can often be hard to differentiate. Okay. Let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Hi there, my name is Maya Acosta, and I'm the host of the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast, where I explore ways that we can optimize our health. I learned about the field of lifestyle medicine, which uses evidence-based approaches to prevent, halt, and in even some cases, reverse disease. These are lifestyle modalities, such as using certain foods as medicine, using exercise to reverse disease, managing our stress, and even getting adequate sleep. Join me and the amazing people that I get to talk to as I set out to learn how taking better care of ourselves can help us both improve the quality of life and enhance our longevity. Let's get started. Right. I think their symptoms are the same. And what makes them okay. different is that Alzheimer's, it's fatal. And okay. it's a disease that progresses. And so, so you bring up a really good point is how does one diagnose this? And so mm -hmm. the first thing that you want to do, and I think this is mostly people who are around the person who might be getting dementia or Alzheimer's. And so here are some of the, the things to be aware of or the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yes. So memory loss, and that's typically noticed by someone else. It's usually the person, we're not very good really at, you know, being able to determine whether we have, we all think we have better memories than we do, right. but often it's the person that's around you that has trouble or that notices that you're having trouble with memory. But again, memory loss is common to dementias. So mm -hmm. just because you have memory loss and you're aging doesn't mean you've got Alzheimer's at all. And we'll okay. talk about how they diagnose that now. Uh, difficulty in communicating or finding words. And okay. a lot of older people have that, but again, doesn't necessarily mean you've got Alzheimer's, but it may be an indication of. Right. Well, of, I have that sometimes too. It, it, it's an excess though, is, is what it comes down to. Cause everyone goes through that at some point, but I think, and I think that's stress related. I think when we're stressed, yeah, we might not even yeah. know that we're stressed, but we have trouble finding those words. Mm -hmm. uh, difficulty with visual and spatial abilities. Okay. So like getting lost while driving. Also, one of the difficulties with the dementia and Alzheimer's is some, they tend to wander, mm -hmm. you know, they'll, so they'll leave, if they can, they'll leave the place, they'll wander, but they have no idea where they are. And there's a thought that they're actually 
when they wander, they're actually trying to accomplish something. It's just, we don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they walk out and just start wandering aimlessly. They probably in their mind have some idea of what it is they're after. But the problem is they don't have very good spatial abilities and they get lost. Mm -hmm. uh, difficulty in reasoning or problem solving, difficulty handling complex tasks, uh, like planning, organizing. Now, what that speaks to a lot is your frontal lobe and a deterioration of your ability in your frontal lobe, which we, you know, that's where we call the executive functions uh, okay. reside. There can even be difficulty in coordination or mortar functions. So walking, stumbling, balance, things like that, uh, confusion and disorientation. Now, I think with certainly with both dementia and Alzheimer's, maybe more so Alzheimer's, there are personality changes, which you mentioned you know, mm -hmm. with your grandmother, yeah. which are really, they're disturbing for those people mm -hmm. around it, because all of a sudden, you know, the person is behaving in a very different way. Yeah. Um, depression, anxiety, what we'd call inappropriate behavior. So calling your granddaughter the B word is, yeah. one would say Pretty. it's inappropriate behavior. Yeah. <laughs> but often, often the inappropriate behavior you know, they might walk out without any pants on or something. And that mm -hmm. for them, you know, nothing's wrong with that. Uh, they may make inappropriate uh, sexual advances to someone. Mm -hmm. Again, and, and what that speaks to is you're just losing your ability to make those those executive functions and those decisions. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the more I talk about this, it's just so sad, you know, that this it happens really sad. It really is. And it's heartbreaking. And one of the reasons why I like bringing awareness to it is because there's a strong genetic component. That's right. It. That's right. So let me just finish. Paranoia, agitation, hallucinations can also uh, be mm -hmm. part of that. So, you know, how do you, how do you prevent this? I think more and more we're realizing that I think in most, most health issues, most mental health issues, there is probably some combination of environment mm -hmm. and genetics. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to tease that out, but there certainly is a genetic component to component, it. Yeah. And so, you know, that's terrible to say, you know, you may have that in your genes, but I think the important thing is you can, I believe there are things you can do to decrease either the severity or the date of onset or, you know, with dementia to, to, you know, hold off on making it very serious. And so I think that's what they're doing with Alzheimer's. And so if you think about how do they diagnose it and then what do they do with it? There's a lot of research going on and I'm, I'll be upfront. I'm not, a, I'm not out there on the research. I don't know what's right. going on, but I do know that there are a lot of pharmaceutical companies, several pharmaceutical companies who are working on medications. And so there are some medications that once it's diagnosed, say with Alzheimer's, then you can take that and it tends to slow it down. Mm -hmm. Now it used to be, you know, like 15 years ago, people would say, well, you never can get a true diagnosis of Alzheimer's and tell you the person dies and you cut open the brain and look at it. And that's not true anymore. So okay. they have what they call biomarkers. And so the biomarkers, I mean, one of the great things about technology is you can do an MRI. Uh, the other one I think that's done is called a PET or a PET. I don't know what that stands for, but they're both imaging the techniques. Scan. Yeah, PET scan, ways to look at the brain. And uh, so you can look inside and you can determine if you have those plaques or tangles. You know, mm -hmm. the, someone who's really experienced at that can see it. And so mm -hmm. to be able to 
confirm that diagnosis. I think the other thing, and this I've always thought is a little risky, is you can do a spinal tap and take some spinal fluid out and okay. test that. But I, I don't know that that's done very often just because mm-hmm. I think it can be a little bit risky. And it's probably more risky the older you are. Right. These a lot are, of things are. Yeah. It's a pretty invasive medical procedure. Mm-hmm. And invasive medical procedures are certainly more risky to a 75-year-old versus a 25-year-old. That's right. That's absolutely so. true. Whereas you can, you know, you can stick someone in an MRI and probably mm-hmm. get a pretty good idea. But that's what they call the biomarker. So I think it's easier to determine the diagnosis nowadays than say it was 15 years ago. So two things we want to talk about is what can we do for the what I'd call the environment or cultural part. So you can't do anything about the genetics, at least right. not right not right now. That right, may change right. someday. Mm-hmm. But what can you do to make it less likely that it might be triggered or that it may be less severe? And I so we're going to go back to some of the things we've talked about before, which is I think the first one is a good exercise. Although I think exercise and what you consume, so what you're eating, mm-hmm. I would guess they're probably pretty equal in their importance in having that healthy lifestyle. Yeah. So the exercise is really critical because it makes for a healthy brain. I mean, it's what we've said in in previous podcasts around anxiety and depression. And what we're really trying to do is to change the connections in the brain. So it has a positive effect. Mm-hmm on those neuronal connections. So that's one thing. Processed foods, we really know processed foods are not that good for us. Mm -hmm. And so what you're consuming is really important. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, fish. I think there are some supplements that are, I like I take fish oil or whatever, you know, I think it just says fish oil on it. Mm -hmm. Because the omega-3s. The omega-3s, yeah, which yeah. you get, which you can get from fish, but I think mostly salmon. Mm-hmm. So you can go online and get recommendations about how to eat healthy. And I think one of the problems in our culture is we don't take time to really cook a meal that from scratch mm-hmm. because it's too easy to go buy something, open the mix, have the processed food. But I think if you really want to work for a healthy brain, So now we're talking about what makes a healthy brain. I think it's good exercise and what you eat. Yes. And we're going to get into sleep next because that is equally important. And as you were talking about these proteins that build up in the brain and how your body gets rid of them, it made me think of the way that we need sleep to get rid of, I guess they kind of call it like gunk in the brain. And And that sounded very much like that. Yeah. And the, you know, the reason we sleep, I think that even people who specialize in, in knowing what sleep is, I think it's still kind of a mystery of the reason we sleep. We do know that if you go without sleep, it's very bad for your body and your brain. And so there's some regenerative process that happens during good sleep, which is what you're, that's exactly what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we are a nation that has big sleep difficulties. And I think it's it's lifestyle choices, it's the way we live, it's the anxiety, it's the stress that we mm-hmm. have. We, we A lot of us stay up too late. We are too much on our tablets. I mean, there are any number of things. And, yes. and the, exor- the exercise and what we eat certainly has a positive effect on how we sleep as well. In my initial intake for anyone, I will ask them what they're eating. And I'll specifically ask about caffeine, 
and alcohol and drugs, how they sleep, how they exercise, because I want to have an idea of what it is, kind of the whole person, what's going on, not just whatever symptoms they bring in. This ties in a little bit to, I mentioned Bob Hill and some of the research he had, that throughout the lifespan, the brain is plastic, is what we call it, mm -hmm. which means we can form those new connections. And it, here's one of the things they found that is really helpful for forming connections in older people, dancing. Okay. So you've got movement and you've got cognition because you, I don't know if you've ever danced. The only time I really mm -hmm. danced is with at my daughter's weddings and I had to take dance classes. And oh, it fun. was hard. It was hard though, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to keep straight, you know, what are the steps? Where am I? And then, you know, you're with this partner who you're doing things. So dancing is really something that is good for your brain because it involves all those things. Yeah. Now, the other thing, I'll just say what I do, because, you know, I'm, I'm 65 and I'm, I don't know that I worry. I just want to be proactive. So I started memorizing poems. Okay. And I remember when I first did it, it a couple of years ago, it's almost like it felt like I woke up a part of my brain that hadn't been used <clears throat> because in, you know, I get, I, I work, I've been working for so many years. It's kind of just happens. And there's part of my brain that I don't use. So I just started memorizing poems. And the other thing that's really helpful is language. So every day I work on Spanish and French okay. just to, and not necessarily that I want to go speak in uh, France or in Spain, but mm. it's just really good exercise for your brain. So it's like, how do you exercise the brain? Now, there are a lot of apps out there, and I don't know how effective these are that are really geared towards this. Like if you yeah. go on the internet, you could, you'll find quite a few of them that they'll specifically say that what they're trying to do is exercise your brain and make it stronger. And I, I think see. what they're doing is they're, you know, they're working on those connections. Yeah. I see ads all the time that say neurologists are begging people to play this game and it's a word game. It's just a ploy, yeah. but you know, but in a way it probably is good or trying to see letters, find a pattern and form a word. Right. And so I think one of the worst things you can do as we age, I mean, you're way, you're far away from this. You have young kids, not retired yet, but as people hit retirement, the worst thing you can do is be sedentary and yes. just sit in front of the TV. Yes. And so you need to keep your mind act. Well, you need to keep your body and your mind active. Mm -hmm. And those people who do have, you know, less, uh, less chance of having that dementia. So mm -hmm. I think we covered I think that's everything that I wanted to say about how do you prevent it? It's being active and eating the right things and getting good sleep. Mm -hmm. Those are all the things that we talk about in previous podcasts. They're just yeah. generally good things for people to do. Yeah, they, they really are. And something that if you know you have that genetic component, you need to do even more. And I right. certainly know I'm at risk for it because right. of my genetics and you know, and what you said about in, or it decreases anxiety and depression. I noticed that I went out of town for three weeks and during that three weeks, I w it was really busy. I was spending a lot of time with family and it was really great, but I wasn't exercising the way I normally do. And I got depressed. Yeah. And when I got back home, I got back into my routine and I started exercising again. I started to feel better. Mm -hmm. So there's something you know, about that blood flow to the brain. Mm-hmm is really, and, and the natural release of endorphins yeah, is what yeah. happens. Yeah. It becomes addictive. Once you can find something that you like in terms of exercise, whatever it may be, 
And I tried to exercise throughout my adult life and I never succeeded at doing it for longer than like a month regularly until I started biking. And I found oh. out that I really like biking and so part of it too. Like a stationary biker, you get out on the road. I get out on the road. Good for you. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it is. And, and I really like it. And part of it is, is I live in a very flat state. And okay. so, <laughs> so that makes it easier. <laughs> it really does. There's no hills and uh-huh. biking up a hill. It's hard. <laughs> I used to live in Utah. Yeah. <laughs> I used, when I lived in Utah, I hated biking. Like I, I used an e-bike because I could get up the hills. That's cheating. Love. <laughs> it really was. But you know, now I'm in this really flat state and That's I nice. bike. Yeah, I bike and, and I love it. And I bike so about I, six. I see a lot of bikers, uh, you know, and uh, runners. Please and don't they, push me off my bike. Oh, <laughs> they. I was they, talking about your. I was referencing the episode we had a while ago. Oh, where I. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you remember that, because um, I live up Immigration Canyon, where there are a lot of bikers. Um, yeah, you I kind of, I kind of had that thought to this morning, but that's a different subject. Just anyway, push that, me off my bike if you ever see. <laughs> but the bikers and the runners, I think I've never had one say that it it doesn't give them that. Like they talk about being in the zone, they talk about it being meditative in some ways, mm-hmm. and then you're getting your heart rate up. It's very aerobic. I think it's one of the best things you can do. So well, get, biking, that's great. And biking is also low impact mm-hmm. too on oh, your right. joints. Right. Oh. And which is really important. Run running is not. And so the bikers with the low impact, I'm all for biking. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So how do you how do you well treat treatment? I don't, I don't know if we call it treatment. I think it's more mm-hmm. care. Yes. How does one care? And I think that at some point, not always, but at some point it becomes necessary to have professional care. And I think, as you said, with your grandmother, eventually she went into a care facility. Mm-hmm. I do believe that, you know, in the early stages, if they can be with family, that's certainly the, um, best. the best thing to do because it's familiar. And if you put them in a care facility too soon, then it just causes that increase in anxiety. But eventually what happens is sadly, they really don't know where they are. And they would yeah. be con- they would be confused and disoriented no matter where they are. So, I think there's a there are a lot of resources out there as far as caring for the person with dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you know, the earlier that it it is really worth consulting a doctor for a yes. specialist because then if you've got that <clears throat> diagnosis of Alzheimer's, then I think there are medications you can try that will slow up that process, that degenerative process. So that's the one thing to do is don't be afraid of going to a doctor and don't be afraid of really saying, I think we need to get this checked out because you need to have the proper care. But I, I think one of the things that we don't think about often is what about the caretakers? Because this can be exactly. incredibly taxing and draining. And so just before uh, we started this podcast, I got online and I just wanted to see what are the resources for caretakers. And there are actually quite a few, and a lot of them are online support groups. Mm-hmm. But I would guess in most large cities, you, you would have an in-person support group. And I think, so the first thing is uh, to get support, just to have, to realize there are other people who are struggling with this same thing. And they also give you ideas. Because, you know, everyone has different experiences and right. what you're what you're struggling with, the person in the support group 
may have dealt with that a couple of months ago and they can say here, you know, try this. I think what you also need is what you call respite. And so you mm-hmm. need to be able to get away. You need to have, be able to trust someone else to come in and be the caretaker. So if they're in your home, uh, someone else to come in and be the caretaker so that you can get away because caretaker fatigue is what we call it is a real thing. It really and is. we wear out. And, and I think that if you don't take a break, then the risk is you yourself become so stressed that often you might get angry, you might get, you know, you might lash out at the person you're caring for. Whereas mm-hmm. if you can take care of yourself, I think it's so important to take care of yourself in these situations, because in the end, you provide better care. Yes. And I- so you really have to be able to take that time away. Right. And I have heard so many horror stories of long-term healthcare facilities. They're often understaffed and underpaid. And I've always heard people say it really needs to be an absolute last resort. So I would say that too. I agree with that. Yeah. You know, there, there does come a point though, where is it more dangerous for them to stay in the home, particularly if there's medication involved and the situation we ran into with my grandma, where she was double taking her medication, that can be incredibly dangerous too. Right. But I think often at some point there become the actual physical task of taking care of an older person, lifting, things like that, bathing, Mm -hmm. dressing, uh, because eventually they lose the ability to do that. And um, what I've heard are more of the horror stories is they'll go and turn on the stove because it's something that they did 50 years ago, but that's it. And so they could either start a fire or leave a stove Mm -hmm. on. And so there really do become some safety considerations. Yes. And But I agree with you. And and I understand every situ every person's situation, every family's situation is different. But I would say if there's any way you can do it, that you know, keeping the person in your home or with you or caring for them in some way is the much better option for them. Yes, I agree. And that's my goal if I because I've thought a lot about it, because I went through it with my grandma so young, and it's a concern I have with my mom. And we've mm-hmm. talked about it, and I think that's really important to talk openly about it. And there was a point where she said, I don't want to be like my mom. I don't want to be a burden. Just put me in a home. And now as she's gotten older, she started to say, please don't let me be neglected in a home. Yeah. And if we do have to deal with this and we're all optimistic that we don't, but I mean, reality is there's a chance. And so my goal is to have someone who is professionally trained to deal with someone who has Alzheimer's and dementia and can Mm -hmm. be an Mm in-home healthcare worker. Right. And uh, Medicare, I know, has in-home healthcare as an option. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And a lot of people don't take advantage of that. My mom worked in Catholic community services for a number of years. And one of the things that they provide is in-home healthcare for the elderly. And my mom did that for a number of years. And for them, I think it's easier because they can better compartmentalize because this isn't a loved one. This is someone, it's someone they will hopefully grow to care for and, and develop a bond with, but it's so much easier to distance yourself because it's work, not family. Right. And so I think that if you have a loved one, who, you know, you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia, then I think one of the first things you do as a potential caretaker is be aware of all the resources in the community. And I think there, for most communities, for most large cities, this wouldn't be true for rural areas, but for most large cities, there are going to be, 
you know, quite a few resources. And mm -hmm. so if you are aware of what they are, you aren't going to need them right off, but eventually you probably will. And so the important thing, don't go through this alone. Don't exactly. be the caretaker alone. Yeah. <clears throat> you need to have support and ideas and uh, respite mm -hmm. and don't do it alone. Yeah, I agree. So this has been fantastic as always. And if you need help anyway, reach out to us. We would love to give you ideas and brainstorm if you 